Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. It's good to be with you this morning. It's a joy to be in God's house, worshiping Him together with you. Our passage this morning is Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. We're continuing in the Olivet Discourse. goes for two full chapters of Matthew. That's almost 10% of the book is devoted to this one talk that Jesus gives. And so, and so I'd like to ask you to stand. We're going to read it. I will read it to you eventually. At some point, I'm going to get the, the version I'm using up there because I like it. Yeah, you've seen it. We've been, we've been, what is the term, on different tracks in our reading for enough months that, and I love the fact that it's more literal because I, I'm with my brother. I don't know if you, some of you read his tweets. I just think, give us what it says. Let his word inform us. Let's not try and make his word conform to our thinking, you know? And just in every way, let's conform ourselves to him rather than make him conform to us. So I, I'll always go for a more little translation. Matthew 25, <clears throat> verses 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven may be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout, behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, saying, no, there will not be enough for us and for you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. And later the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered and said, truly I say to you, I don't know you. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know the day nor the hour. The word of the Lord. Please remain standing as we pray that God will bless the reading and the, the preaching of his word. Raise your hands with me. Father, we thank you for your word. It is precious. It is, it is a gift that is that is so precious that your son himself is called the word, the living word. And so we pray, Father, that his life may inhabit my words and our thoughts as we look at your word this morning, and that we will be blessed by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Over the years, over the last probably 10 years, I've enjoyed taking men from this church to a wilderness area that many people in America don't even know exists. It used to be a joint national park between the United States and Canada. It's now no longer a joint park where you could go anywhere in either country in this park and not need any passport or any, any, any permission. It's now separated. You, there's even in the middle of a, a lake uh, <laughs> with no roads to it on an island, there's a customs house. There's a 
of border crossings. <laughs> they have to get there by canoe, but it's manned, it's populated, and uh, so it's really lost a lot of its character in terms of the ability to go around and the, the ease of traveling in there. And, and about half the territory is now sort of hard to get to from the United States because it's in Canada. But it's a wilderness area that years ago, the, United, the National Geographic, when I was in high school, did a, did a book on the 50 or 100 greatest wilderness areas in the world. And I think there were two or three that they included from our nation, from the United States in the 100. And this was one of the three. And it's certainly that. It's one of the great beauties of the world. I could show you, I could show you pictures on on this iPad, and I just turned it off. <laughs> I've got my sermon, so I'm not going to, because I'll probably never find my way back. But um, I could show you pictures that would boggle your mind, and some of you have been there and know it. Now, in the years I've taken guys to the Boundary Waters canoe area, and probably, what, 20 or 30 of us have gone so far, and I'm looking forward to taking more in the future. In the years that I've taken guys to the Boundary Waters <clears throat> which is in northern Minnesota, I've learned that there are two specific times when those men are not likely to be enthusiastic about going there. And uh, the first of those, that you can be certain that some guys will exhibit a lack of enthusiasm about the idea of going there is when you first present the idea to them. Not all of them, but... It's obvious that with some guys that, that I'm not convincing enough or I'm not skilled enough at salesmanship because they, they, they respond very negatively as though it's not their idea of a fun time. It's not always the guys that you expect who react that way. A couple of years ago, I thought I might have to prod Matthew French to get him to go, where's Matthew? Yeah, I thought I'd have to prod him and he was eager. And then I always thought that Matt McClavick would be man enough to go, and he's not, you know. So. <laughs> and Mike Arndt, I, should, I, I think I, I heard some laughter coming from over in that direction. So you can be certain that there's going to be some reluctance and, and some negative expressions when you first bring up the idea. Even people who go sometimes go, mm-hmm, Really? The second time that they're not going to be enthusiastic about a trip to the Boundary Waters is the first time they get up there and are in there and it occurs to them that this trip may not be comfortable. And at times it occurs to them that it's possible to die up there. Really, that, that always gives guys a little bit of a negative flavor when they realize they could die, you know. <laughs> but... Uh, that doesn't always happen, but always, in every trip, there's some amount of, of serious discomfort. It, the, the, the first time I took a few men, I, I think I'd gone once with Ken before taking a few men. I don't remember the price, precise order, but I took Kevin Clark, Joe Hench, and John Johnson up there. And we went down, uh, well, we went up the, the Granite River route, which is... One side of the river is in America, the other side's in Canada, and it's a fun trip up. And you get what you don't get at many places. You get some, uh, some white water along the way. In fact, 
There's a point on the map where they say treacherous. Do not try and go through these rapids. Portage around them, but the portage stinks. And so you always try and, you know, it's a terrible portage. And our women did it years ago, and I don't know how they did it because we men could barely do it. But anyway, um, we, the guys, we tried to, to shoot the rapids. And they're not really that impressive rapids. You know, it's not like a, you know, the kind of thing that you do in whitewater rafting, but it, they are rapid and there are rocks. And uh, Joe and I were in a canoe and I was sick as a dog. I had been vomiting. I was sick. I was not enjoying this trip. We make it through the rapids. As I recall, Joe, I think we, by the time we got out of the, 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 the eddies and the swirls, we were going backwards. Am I right about that? Do I remember correctly? No? We were going forward? Yeah, you were in the stern. You would say that, wouldn't you? Okay. He says, I'm not going to let a canoe get turned around on me. No, but he was looking backwards. I remember that. And he's watching the other canoe with, with Kevin and John as they're following us through the rapids. And I hear him say, oh, they're down. So in my illness, I turn around and I look, and they're down. Their canoe is wrapped inside out, totally like 90 degrees around a rock, you know, and pinned against it by the, the, the current, just totally pinned there. And so eventually John Johnson makes his way. I think it was John who came down to us and said, what do we do? And I'm sick as a dog. I have a fever. I'm just, and I said, you get it off the rock. <laughs> so he went back and told Kevin, and Kevin said, we get it off the rock. I don't think they were enjoying themselves then. You know, it's one of those times. A couple of years ago, we went up there and uh, we paddled all day from our first night's campsite down to the second night. Got out, started getting our camp right, ready, and it started to rain. And as we were, it was raining, we realized we had left our food pack, all the food, at the first campsite, which was a full day's paddle back. So Asher, motor man, who just motored like, a, I mean, what doctor is as strong as Asher? We put him in the front of the canoe, and uh, he just motored, and Dave Myers and I, and we covered the, what was it? 14 miles that it took to go there and back. But when we started, it's, as we started out, the rain just came down in buckets with thunder and lightning. And we had 14 miles to paddle. And, you know, Asher even lost his smile. And that says something about... So you can, you can trust that there will be times in the Boundary Waters when the beauty and the glory will give way to dismay. And this parable that we have before us is a story of such a time. Jesus uses as his theme in this parable the institution given to man by God at creation, even before the fall, that beautiful, glorious institution that exists before the fall, that exists after the fall, and that will exist eternally in heaven of marriage. Now, marriage in heaven is going to be different than on earth, but it is going to exist. And the goal of our spiritual existence as disciples of Jesus 
is to be included in the wedding banquet. And that wedding banquet is the banquet of Christ coming to claim the church, which is described in, in Scripture as his bride. So there is a great wedding feast, a great wedding banquet, a great, great wedding ceremony ahead in heaven. The, the book of Revelation calls it the great wedding feast of the Lamb. So in this parable, as often in the ministry of Christ and in his parables, the great good and preeminent goal of all human life is represented as a wedding, a wedding feast here. Jesus performs his first public miracle at a wedding, turning water into wine. You can imagine, we were talking the other day about what would happen if a caterer didn't show up at a wedding and you were left there, everyone at the banquet and things would run out. Well, that's the same as the, 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 the wine running out. It's such a crisis that Jesus' mother says, deal with it, son, and he deals with it. It's a glorious picture of the, of the importance to the Son of God of marriage. His first public miracle turns water into wine. <coughs> what a strange miracle. It's especially strange to Mr. James, isn't it? <laughs> and so, throughout his, his work, Throughout his teaching, he uses marriage and weddings as a theme. Numerous occasions, talks about a king throwing a wedding banquet and invited guests not coming. Telling the people who asked him why his disciples were not fasting when the Pharisees and John's disciples were doing so. And he said, the wedding guests can't fast while the bridegroom's with them. He refers to himself as the bridegroom and says, look, my guys can't be unhappy. I'm here. He speaks in a parable of a master who left for a wedding banquet and the servants needing to be ready for him on his return. Here he compares the kingdom of heaven to, to a bridegroom on his way to his marriage. Marriage is the great goal, the deepest blessing, the, the, great, the great destination that we're headed for in eternity. It's presented that way in Christ's teaching over and over. That day in eternity when all the enemies will be overcome and all sin done away with, death triumphed over forever, his disciples, Christ's disciples, raised from the dead, raised from the earth, and brought to be with him eternally, never to fall away, never to falter, never to be sad again. God will wipe every tear from their eye, and that wiping is eternally true, never to be sad again. At the wedding of the Lamb of God, our being united with him at the wedding feast of the Lamb in eternity. And so here as elsewhere in the teaching of Christ, in this parable, the goal is to make it to the wedding feast of God. But the story of this parable that he tells, Jesus tells his disciples contained in this parable is not an easy one nor is it necessarily a comforting one. Now remember, Jesus is speaking to his 12 apostles, his closest followers about things lying ahead. He has warned them of events and dangers they will face, warned them of particular attacks that will be made on them as members of his church, particular attacks that will be faced by the, the people of God in days to come, false messiahs, false teachers, persecutions, tribulations. He's warned them of the danger of 
them and other leaders falling into sin because of the delay in his return, sinning against the flock that he has left in their care by not carefully protecting it, sinning directly against him who has left the flock in their care by abusing that flock, by forgetting that they are merely slaves of his, working on his behalf and coming to regard them themselves as the kingpins in the plan, the, the actual great ones. He reminds them that they are not the rightful owners of the vineyard. They are just slaves working in it, and they will give an account to him one day. But here in this parable, Jesus warns his disciples of an even closer danger than the things he's already warned them of. Here, Christ cautions the 12 of the danger posed by hypocrisy and coldness in love toward him arising in them in days to come as his absence grows prolonged. This combination of things will not lead to abuse of their fellow slaves. That's not the warning he's giving here. He gave that in the chapter we looked at last week in the passage of last week. But the danger here is in themselves of sleepiness, of a lack of zeal, a declining faith. This danger that Christ warns of in this passage is of a growing ennui, which is just a general sense of lethargy and, and boredom. The way that many of us spend much of our lives. A failure of passion, a quiet boredom, a decline of zeal, tiredness, sleepiness of the soul that will overtake them like an invisible disease which gives no external warning, but inwardly there is a sudden moment approaching that is irreversibly death. And he says, hey, hey, be aware. So let's begin to heed this warning by taking stock of the parts of the parable, the various figures in it. Note first that Jesus says when he introduces this parable, the kingdom of heaven is like. Now by speaking of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus could be speaking of three, any of three heavens that Scripture speaks of. There is the lowest heaven which surrounds us, the sky, the firmament, it's called, the clouds, the, the earth's atmosphere. That's one heaven. Ancient times, that was the first heaven. The second heaven is the, celeste, uh, the solar system, the, the stars, all the the elements of the heavens that lie beyond the constellations, all that kind of thing that lie, the galaxies that lie beyond the first heaven. The third heaven, Paul speaks of that he was caught up into the third heaven where he saw things inexpressible, and that's the heaven where God sits enthroned. Now Jesus is speaking here of the third heaven. But it's not that final form of the third heaven where it, will be with, where it will be that he is married to his bride. It's the germ form that we have today, which is the kingdom of God and earth. So we have in germ what we'll have in full flower one day here in the bride of Christ on earth. 
the heaven that Jesus is referring to here, the kingdom of heaven is like this, is the land where we wait with the promise, the certainty, and as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, but waiting for its realization. This heaven is not a, a heaven of realization, it's a heaven of anticipation that will one day become realization. And the way we know that it's not exactly the same heaven is that this heaven has unwise virgins in it. The kingdom of heaven is like, Jesus says, he tells this parable, and he says there were 10 virgins. Some were wise, some were not. And so in this heaven, this kingdom of heaven on earth, it's Christ's kingdom, but it's mixed. Jesus is often warning that the kingdom of heaven on earth is a mixed body. It's not uniform. And yet it is truly the kingdom of heaven when the Pharisees are criticizing Jesus and his disciples for casting out demons and were saying he was doing it by, by Satan himself. Jesus says to them, Matthew 12, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, has come upon you. So Jesus says, hey, the kingdom of God is here. This is the kingdom. So note first that this is a story of waiting, in particular waiting for the glories of that full kingdom where things that are anticipated in this life are realized. It's a story of waiting for that wedding banquet. The life that we live in this kingdom, the kingdom of God on earth, the kingdom of heaven here is a life of waiting. The people of this kingdom are referred to by Christ here under the figure in the parable of ten virgins, ten young women, virginal attendants, awaiting the bridegroom, seeking to accompany him to his wedding. Now the parable is working on two levels by employing this theme of a wedding. The first level is what appears to be, I'm trusting, I haven't looked it up myself, but <coughs> commentators say it was an ancient custom of young unmarried women to accompany the bridegroom to his wedding. There would be attendants who would be young unmarried virgins who would go with the bridegroom to the weddings. That may strike you as strange in a day when our custom is to have brides with their attendants and groom the groom with his attendants and for the, the sexes to be separated in that way. But there's nothing strange about it. You can, you can obviously um, imagine a scene where it would be the opposite, where there would be virgins that would go and, and attend the groom. It's not unseemly, it's just different. But note, though these are the groom's attendants, there's no mention of the bride. So why is it that there's no mention of a bride? Well, that's because Jesus is referring in this parable to his return when he will come to claim his bride. And he's telling his disciples to be ready. Now his bride is singular. He doesn't have brides. He has one bride, and that's the church of Jesus Christ. All those who have loved him, all those who know him as their savior. Christ is no polygamist. 
He doesn't marry each of us individually. He marries one bride, and we are incorporated into his life and his love by being part of his bride. Within his bride, the church, there are individual virgins. And so these virgins are, in this parable, both the attendants of the groom, but they also stand as those who will one day be joined to him by their inclusion in this wedding feast. So you understand that they're awaiting him, but then they will one day be part of the, the church and they will be celebrating their having become joined to Christ through the church. So to be cast out of this banquet is to be cast out of heaven, to be cast out from Christ. It's to be excluded from the wedding feast of the Lamb and relegated to that realm where, as he spoke of at the end of the last chapter, there is weeping and gnashing of teeth for eternity. Now, some of us have missed important events that we wanted to be at that we planned to go to. Back in the day before cellular phones, my cousin John, having come from Pittsburgh to Boston for a family graduation from seminary. I don't remember if it was my older brother graduating or it was my younger brother and me graduating a year or two later. He came, he got a, a, a hotel room downtown and uh, on the day of the graduation, he took the T, Boston's transit system, the metro, the MTA. Took a train north to the last station, which was as close as you could get which is the Wonderland Station in Revere. And Wonderland Station is known for the, well, for its name. It's a great name for a, for a station. It's also the name of a dog track that I don't know if it still exists, but they had dog races at, and it was right next to the station. So it was the Wonderland Station and the Wonderland Dog Track right beside each other. The dog track was on one side of the station, and the parking and the cars were on kind of the other side. Now there's streets on both sides. We went up to pick... John up at Wonderland. John wasn't there. No cell phones. We waited and waited. Eventually, we, our attendance at the, our own graduation, whoever it was, my brother, mine, or whatever, I, the, the details aren't important. What is important is that John never showed, and we had to go back, and we went through the ceremony. And uh, somehow afterwards, he was able to get to a phone and call us at my younger brother's apartment and say, hey, I'm here at Wonderland. And so for years, <laughs> we as a family said, yeah, John came for the graduation, but he got waylaid by the dogs. <laughs> he spent our graduation betting on the dogs at the Wonderland racetrack. And it was a joke that the family told for years. But you know, John actually did get to the party, and uh, he may have missed the graduation ceremony, but he was there at the party. There is, however, no coming back from exclusion from this party. You don't get a second chance. You don't get to say, hey, I'm here at Wonderland. Come pick me up. If you're left out, you're left out. If a member of the church, a citizen of Christ's earthly kingdom, misses the coming of the bridegroom, their flame having gone out, the wedding goes on. There's no stopping. There's no waiting. The wedding ceremony is not repeated. This wedding is going to happen, and it's not going to be put on pause. 
There's nothing going to derail it. And when it's over, it's over. Those not in the church, those attendants not there because their flame has gone out, who were there at the beginning of the night, they'll have no recourse. The wedding's over. The bride of Christ is married. There is no further opportunity to join him. He does not give out absentee ballots to his wedding. Now this is the general form and warning of the parable. So now let's focus on the ten virgins. We know at the end that the group is divided in two. But let's talk about how all ten are alike initially. Now we may over the next couple of weeks divide and look at the, the five wise and the five foolish. But this morning let's think about how all ten are alike. First, all ten who go to meet the bridegroom are virgins. The kingdom of heaven is like ten virgins who go to meet the bridegroom. Not five virgins and five messy people. Not five beautiful virgins and five harlots. All ten are virgins. They are all in the church here on earth. They all appear destined for heaven. They are all, in a sense, pure, separated from the world. They're all in the church here on earth. Like weeds and tares, they're growing together in the field and alike. They look alike initially. They don't look different. Another parable tells, told by Jesus is Kingdom of heaven is like a field, and someone sowed weeds, and an enemy sowed weeds in the farmer's field, and he said, leave them there. Can't pull them out because it looks, it's indistinguishable. At the end, at the harvest, we'll deal with it. They look to Christ together with the rest. They speak his name. They long for him. They're there waiting. They profess the laws of their king, their king who they loved. They speak about his word just like the rest, all ten. All ten claim Jesus as their earthly king. And Jesus is with his bride on earth. He says, where two or three of you are gathered in my name, there am I also. He's ruling here just as he will rule one day in heaven. He's powerful here in us. He is with us. And all ten of these virgins know his reign. All ten join in worshiping him. All ten outwardly respect his law. All ten know something of the glory of the kingdom of heaven and have tasted the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. So all ten are just like you. All right? Second, all ten go out with lamps lit, awaiting the bridegroom. They all start out the same. They're eager. They look eagerly. They're wanting to be there. They're expectant. They're set apart from the general mass of mankind because they're waiting for the king, for the bridegroom. They've begun well. None of the ten lacks faith sufficient to start the journey. They're willing to start. They believe. They're convinced. They start down the road to heaven. They are 
pilgrims, all of them, like Bunyan's Pilgrim and the Pilgrim's Progress, all of them have their eyes set on that celestial city. They're all wanting to go there. That's the second way they're alike. All 10 are virgins. All 10 go out with lamps lit. Third way they're all alike is that all 10 fall asleep. This too is stated by Christ. He says at the end, so don't fall asleep, but he makes it clear that all 10 fall asleep. And so somehow all 10 do sleep. It's a necessary part of the parable. Verse five, now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. No division at this point, no separation, all falling asleep. All have fallen asleep. And this has to be understood as well. The same weariness strikes all of them. All of them give in to the temptation to sleep, the drowsiness of waiting into the night without the bridegroom and his arrival with it seeming like it should have come but being delayed. It hits them all alike. Now there are two differences between the ten. Two key differences between the five found waiting and the five caught unprepared. All ten virgins, all ten go out with lamps lit, all ten fall asleep. What are the differences? Well, obviously five are wise and five are foolish. Verse two. Now five of them were foolish and five were prudent. Five are wise, five are foolish. So in the church of Christ, there are the wise and there are the foolish. The five wise take lamps and extra oil anticipating the possibility of a long night. The five foolish don't take extra oil. Verses three and four, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Wisdom, prudence led five to take extra oil. They were prepared for a wait. The foolish, however, anticipated a short wait, a quick coming, an easy night. There's much to be learned from the five foolish virgins, but this thing is fundamental. They weren't prepared for a wait. They all fall asleep, but when the bridegroom arrives, five are prepared and five are not. So in closing, we should draw a number of lessons from this broad outline of Christ's parable. Big picture points that Christ is painting here. And as I said, I may return to the five wise and the five foolish separately. I'm not sure. But this much must be said in a very clear, big picture way. And this, must, this much must be taken to heart immediately. It's just inescapably obvious. First, within the church, within the kingdom of God on earth, there is a fundamental division. And that division is the point of this parable, isn't it? It's Christ's point, actually, in his next parable, which is the parable of the talents. The one with five, the one with two, the one with one. The difference between them. It is even more powerfully his point in the last parable that concludes this Olivet Discourse, the last parable in this chapter, the parable of the separation in heaven of the sheep and the goats. So all through this chapter, Jesus is pointing out, and he was pointing it out all through the last chapter, and in fact, it is the theme of the entire 
all of that discourse, this huge long chunk of scripture that's devoted to this teaching on the Mount of Olives on Tuesday of the week Christ died, the entirety of that, of that sermon to his disciples is the realization that there are two groups in the church. There is a a great divide, a great fault line running through the bride of Christ, the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Those on one side are wise and they will be found waiting with oil lamps lit at the end and the other five are foolish. And somewhere along the way they'll fall asleep and then when the cry arises, the bridegroom's here, whether that come at death, when Jesus comes to take us, or at his, his final coming, his return in the heavens, they'll be unprepared. They'll go, whoa, 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 whoa. I started out, let's get it done now, and they won't be able to. The entire all of that discourse has as its point that there will be much waiting, much, but not just waiting, suffering, betrayal, much seeming power as they're waiting for the bridegroom, much seeming power in the forces of Satan, power arrayed against them, suffering, tribulation, death, murder of them, Families, betraying family members before this return. The sleep is a sleep filled with, in a sense, nightmares. Hard time. And the virgins will go, whoa, whoa, and they'll fall asleep. And this is true here. And I'm going to be saying this, and we're going to be seeing this over and over again in weeks to come as we go through this chapter. Jesus is warning there is a divide in his kingdom between its true subjects and those who will ultimately be excluded. The wise virgins and the foolish, the tares and the wheat, the sheep and the goats, those who bear fruit and those who do not. And you are in one of those categories or the other. Which is it? This is undeniably a warning from Christ to consider carefully where we stand. Are we wise? Will we be found ready? Will we enter the wedding feast? Will we be filled with joy because we are prepared when Christ returns or comes for us? Or are we foolish? Has our attention flagged? Is our oil running out? Will we be unready and thus excluded from Christ on the day of his immense, stupendous, glorious coming? Second, there's a divide is number one. Second, I want to return to the boundary waters for a moment. There are two moments of fear, I said, involved in going there. First is the initial fear of committing to it, the fear of actually doing the thing, of the exertion of the hardships and the dangers But that can be overcome. 
And all of you who are here have overcome that. You've said, I'm going to follow. Now, some of you I know have not yet made a commitment to the kingdom, and I urge you to. But all of you are theoretically at least having committed yourself to Christ. You've said, as you're part of this church, you've said, I want to be found waiting on that day. But it is a hard decision to make. And if you have not made that decision and have not come to repent of your sins and to worship Jesus, I urge you to do so. That's the first challenge on the way to the boundary waters. It's actually doing the thing and saying, I'm going to do it. And I call on all of us to say, I will follow Jesus. It is the, it is the life of lives. It is glorious. It's it's beyond comprehension. It is powerful to do this. And so I urge you, make that choice. Do that commitment. Repent and say to Christ, I need you. There is a second point of difficulty. The first fear fades, and with its fading comes excitement, the tasting of the power of the kingdom, the love of Christ. And that is getting up there and getting in your canoe and starting out in the boundary waters with the sun shining and it beautiful and you're enthused because you've never seen a place that's quite like it and you can drink the water right out of the lakes. It's that clean, it's just perfect. And we've all been at this point as the virgins in this parable. We've, we feared committing, but we did. We set out. There was excitement. There was glory. It was beautiful. But then in the boundary waters, inevitably, a negative reality intrudes on the happiness it can be as simple as just boredom. Some people, I've gone up there, normally younger people, but not always. They never encounter a, a storm in the boundary. They have little pain. And they don't ever get into danger, but they just don't like life up there. They don't have their cell phones. There's no cell service. There's not, you know, and, and uh, it was so when I was a kid. You know, there were, I remember going on a co-ed trip uh, into Algonquin. It was a two-week co-ed canoeing trip from a Christian camp. And the girls, I mean, they just didn't like it. And the guys loved it. And so the girls and the guys were all high schoolers, hated each other because the guys wanted to do it and the girls wanted to put on makeup. <laughs> I don't know why they went on the, on the canoe trip. But that's the way of some people. They get up there and they prefer life on the outside. On our trips, the guys want the girls who aren't around. And they grow cold to the wilderness, and their enthusiasm flags. Some encounter actual hardship, days of rain, cold, leaky tents, hunger. The first time we went up there, my younger brother and I with our sister back in 1971, it was rainy, 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 and my sister packed for a 23-year-old girl the kind of food rather than, you know, 12-year-old boys. And we were hungry, hungry, because we were working hard, and it, it was starvation. We both said we'd never go back, really. We said, I will never go back to the Boundary Waters. Now, some people actually encounter real danger. <sighs> some of you have met bears in your campsite, growling bears trying to steal your food. Some of you have overturned your canoes in the rapids. Some of you have gone against a killer wind on, a, on Saganaga, a 20-mile lake, or on, on Mountain Lake, which is eight miles thin and just a canyon for the wind to run through it. Some of you 
went on three-mile portages through swamps with mud up to your thighs, and you realized you really could die. And we all fall asleep. All of us. At some point, the pressing against us of life, the difficulties that Jesus said are entailed in taking up our cross and following him of all men hating us, speaking ill of us. These things begin to weigh on us and it bears us down and we start to grow drowsy to the glory, drowsy to the challenge, drowsy. And it hits us all. All of us face the distractions and dangers of life in the kingdom of heaven and some fall away. So you started well. You began this journey with enthusiasm. You tasted the glory of the kingdom of God. But now you're drowsy. Perhaps you've fallen asleep. You're in the world and you have your eyes no longer fixed on the coming glory of Christ and the very real glory that exists in the church here of Christ but is immensely less than the coming glory. You no longer have your eyes fixed on Christ's love for you and his death for you. The depth of your sin that once weighed you down and made you turn to Jesus. But now you think you're pretty good. You're chasing the things this world offers. No longer chasing Christ. Money. Worldly things. Your eyes are on girls or guys, not Christ. Your eyes are straying perhaps to another man than the one you married. And I mean this both in your human marriage and in your heavenly marriage to Christ you're bored the weight you don't like it you're sleepwalking in the kingdom of God your real business in life is no longer the business of Christ but the business you own you're raising your children and you've gone from saying I'm going to raise sharp arrows for the bow of God that be fired into this world to to penetrate this world with God's message. Now you're just saying, get a good job. Get a good education. Get a good career. And your goals for your children are for citizenship in earthly kingdoms rather than citizenship in heavenly kingdom. And so you're asleep and you're raising children who are drowsy as well. Or perhaps you've tasted the pain of following Christ. You did lose your job out of devotion to him. You did not become married because you are first for Christ. And the man you marry must be first for Christ as well. And you have not married because you have not met such a man. And so you know the reality of the suffering that Jesus speaks of in this discourse, this private sermon to those of you who love him. And the question is, will you be found awake with your lamp lit when he returns at his coming. Whether it be his coming on the day of glory for all men or his coming for you on the day of your death. My brother and I said we'd never go back again to the Boundary Waters after our first trip there, never. But you know the next year rolled around. My sister said, hey, I'm going back again. Do you guys wanna go? And we both said, yeah, we'll go. And we went again that year and the next year, and the next year, and the next year. And then we went a couple times a year, and we went longer trips. The longest was a month up there. We kept going back. We had bears eat all our food, destroy our packs, 
If it had happened the first year, we'd have said, good, it's a reason to leave. But we were out for a month that time, and we went, got resupplied and returned for the rest of our time. We got wet a lot. We were miserable often, but year after year, we returned. Why did we go back to that which made us miserable? Simply the growing knowledge filling us that though life up in the boundary waters might be hard and cold and miserable and dangerous, it was more life and it is more life than any other life. We lived in the boundary waters where life is real, where the water can be drunk right out of the lake, where the land and the sky are so great and beautiful and vast that you you feel like it's taking some kind of a drug, some wonderful drug. It got in our blood, the beauty, the beauty, the glory of God's creation. We came to see God in it over time. Not that the beauty was God, not that we worshiped the creation, but over time we grew to see the immensity of God who created such a beautiful place. And up there we came to know something more of him than can be found in the land of TV and internet and phones and earthly news. To us, there's no comparable glory anywhere else. Women, you know about this. My my mother used to say to young women about, about childbirth, especially to young women having their first baby, and women who are worried about the process, she'd say, ah, it is, it's painful. It's, it's hard. But you forget the pain, she said, and you keep the child and you have the glory. And so the next time around, you're happy because you forget the pain. You may say never again in the midst of labor, but you forget the pain and you willingly go ahead and you bear another child. Some of you have never seen the beauty of Christ's glory. You've never entered his kingdom. You've been unwilling to take the risk of committing your life to him. And I tell you, there is no greater, no more glorious, no more wonderful life. Take up his call. Say to him today, I want in. I want you. Do it now. Do it. And you will find life indeed. The only real life. You will be thrilled. You will be enraptured. You will be exhilarated. And of course, you will be challenged and tried by such a life. It will take more from you than anything else you attempt on earth, but it will be living. It will be living as few people live on this world. Some of you are sleeping. Your oil is running out. You discovered the joy and beauty of this kingdom at one point but now you're growing cold because you're tasting the danger. 
you're sensing the necessity of persevering, not for a moment, but for a lifetime of living by faith rather than sight. You saw glory, you tasted power. Somehow something has clogged your vision and your heart. The world has, and you no longer see it, and you're You're getting drowsy. You're inured to the glory. Boredom, ennui, they've set in. You're no longer training, fighting, running in this kingdom. You're like the guys I saw at the end of the race that went in front of our house yesterday. Went by our house for like an hour. I don't know what race it was, but there were accompanying cars and they took up one of the lanes on River Road. The first guys were going boom, 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 boom down the road. About the middle of the pack, they're going boom, 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 boom down. The, and then at the end, just before the, the final chase car, there were people who were walking like this. Now, I, I honor them. If you're one of those walking like this, I'm sure there was a reason for it, and even that was wonderful for you to do. But in the end, In the end, you can't walk at the end of the race, in the race for Christ's kingdom. You've got to be alive. You've got to be awake. You've got to be running to claim the prize. Jesus never said it would be easy. Jesus never said his return would not entail lengthy, lengthy perseverance in hard things. Jesus told you what to expect, didn't he? Did he fool you initially? Did he lie to you? You tasted the beauty of it initially. You saw that glory. You felt the power. Why are you back in the world? Why? What does it have to offer to someone who's had a vision of heaven? When I go to the BWCA, the Boundary Waters Canoe Area, this time in life, I often want a short, easy trip because I'm older. Yeah, I think, oh, let's just set a base camp and go out on little day trips. But every time I do it, I think about the glories I'm missing. And I think, oh, next time, I'm going to really live up here. And I'm going to go deep, deep in the boundary waters to see things no one saw in the last week. I'm going to go deep. That's living. That's living in the boundary waters, and that's living for Christ. Wake up. Go deep. See the glory of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this parable that is given to us to wake us up. And I pray that we will be awake, that we'll be found with oil in our lamps and the light burning when you come for us. We pray it in the name of Jesus, Father. Wake us up. Wake up all of us, those who've never set out and those who are faltering, and those of us who are still running, Father, may we all see more and be challenged to give more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.